Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special year-end edition of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I am joined over the course of the next hour by some of our very best, smartest wisest guests. Uh, of course, we we start with our usual um, co-hosts for this time of the week, uh, Dr. Kavita Patel, who is a former um, head of health policy in the Obama White House, a practicing physician affiliated with Brookings, probably very busy with holiday items at this point of the year. How are you, Kavita? Good, good. My Christmas present, uh, my holiday present is I'm getting vaccinated today. So that's my wow. That's that's, that's the best. My my big event. It is. It's the best <laughs> gift possible. Yeah, <laughs> that is the holiday. That's the gift of the year, actually. Um, <laughs> and uh, here in New York City, we have uh, Ryan Goodman, who's a a professor at NYU Law School and co-editor of Just Security. How are you today, Ryan? Pretty well, David. Thanks. And we are joined by uh, a friend, one of our guests from earlier in the uh, year, uh, uh, Kurt Anderson, who is a prolific author who um, wrote uh, most recently a book called Evil Geniuses, which uh, astutely explained how we ended up where we are um, and uh, has done extremely well. It's a terrific book. How are you today, Kurt? I am well. And and. Couldn't be happier to be here uh, as a fan of all three of you. So, Well, you're very kind. We will be joined over the remainder of the hour by uh, Lori Garrett, who uh, is a, a friend of ours and well-known to all of you, and uh, also by Juliet Kayyem for the last part of the hour. And our goal here is to try and take a look at 2020. Um, and I want to start with one particular question, but we'll move on to others. Uh, it seems like a year kind of like no other and annus horribilis. Um, um, but uh, the question is, how much of 2020 is a one-off and how much of it is changing things forever? Um, and and I'd just like to get the your, each of your takes on that, starting with you, Kurt. Well, I mean, I think we're all familiar with the terrible horrible parts of it and probably don't need to be reminded of them so much but and and not to be the glass is always half full and silver linings guy but uh, but i do think uh, what we've learned what i've learned what we've learned in 2020 are a lot of things we knew or suspected or hoped even and and were shown to be very, very true in stark relief. I mean, I think, for instance, I mean, and people say, oh, the pandemic showed the inequalities of, of American society. And that is certainly true. And, and I'm not sure that's all bad. You know, I, I, I think, for instance, the mm. fact that it showed in the very simplest way, a certain <laughs> large fraction of Americans, because of the work they do, like we're doing now, can work at home, and a certain large fraction of Americans can't do that. And which is, which is to me, shows instead of the old blue collar, white collar distinction between workers, which was, hasn't been very helpful or clarifying for a long time, I think this who can work at home and who can't is, 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 is clear in this instance and in this circumstance to everyone as a kind of basic class distinction and and a, par, a performer you know professional athletes and uh you know actors aside i suppose it really does show you know the two americas uh, in terms of in terms of work in terms of income in terms of livelihoods and there are lots of things like that like the the alternative realities right i mean i published my previous book was about that fantasy land and okay we knew that we knew that's true and people said that 
But but in 2020, thanks to to the fantasist in chief, the the conspiracy theorist in chief, and his helpers, uh, we now more than ever see this politicized alternative realities and how desperately problematic that is. Uh, lots of other things, you know, that, that again, we knew, we knew that I wrote in Evil Geniuses about how uh, this pandemic would accelerate what was already happening in terms of ultra automation and AI eliminating many human jobs sooner rather, you know, sooner rather than later. And this, of course, made that absolutely clear, accelerated that, resulted, among other things, in the Amazons of the world. Uh, increasing in value by many, many, many billions and billions of dollars. And and so on and on, uh, I, you know, it's not even for better and worse. I mean, th these are things that were extant that this, to me, uh, has shown uh, starkly and unmistakably to the wider world. Okay. Um, uh, we are also now joined, as I, as I, as I foretold, because I have uh, the power of future sight, Lori Garrett, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author and friend of ours. Um, and of course, we're always talking to Lori about uh, um, COVID recently. Um, but but Lori, uh, as I explained to everybody, what I would really want to look at is 2020 in terms of what do we think about 2020 is unique to 2020 and and, and perhaps even more importantly, what has it changed that is going to remain different? Um, and Kurt kicked us off on that, and I'd like to turn to you, and then I'll turn to Kavita and Ryan. 2020, the year that the sound of ambulances, such as the three going past my house right now, became commonplace, became just a soundtrack in the background, like honking horns and uh, crying babies. 2020 was the year that every single flaw in American society was brought into high relief because we collectively faced a disaster and chose to deal with it in a non-collective manner. 2020 was the year of the ugliest election in American history, probably since the Civil War, and certainly the ugliest politics of my lifetime. Lots of people were drawing parallels between 2020 and 1968. But uh, I'm of an age where 68 was a fond memory. <laughs> it was a great time. It was the best music ever. It was the best everything ever. And yes, my heroes were assassinated. And my high school was a time of uh, tragic assassinations and civil rights riots and the Vietnam War and trying to keep both my brothers from being drafted. But Somehow, 2020 is far, 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 far worse. Um, I think one of the things that has been so striking about 2020 is that it is the wealthiest world that has struggled the hardest to deal with COVID and deal with all of its axillary uh, added impact and secondary and tertiary uh, economic and uh, social repercussions. Um, and I think for all of us that have been in the business of pandemic preparedness and prediction for a long time, the one thing we had never imagined was a government in power that would actually be the major perpetrator of disinformation, of lies, of untruths, of anti-science mentality, and that it would be the richest country on planet Earth that would perform the poorest in response to an epidemic rather than being sort of the mentor to poorer states, showing them how to get the job done. And now I think we're in a topsy-turvy world as a result. Um, whether it's looking at WHO, a World Health Organization on any given day and the messages that they're putting out, or it's looking at the World Bank or uh, financial markets, everything is completely upside down now. And the lack of an American presence on the international stage in any positive way whatsoever has left all sorts of scurrilous players to have dominant roles, such as China and uh, Russia, and uh, we could go through the list, Brazil. <laughs> and uh, it's as a result means that everything we imagine on the multilateral front as 
potential ways to collectively deal with the disaster and to prepare for climate change has been undermined. So now we look forward to 2021, we have a new leader coming in, unless there's a coup d'etat in the next uh, three weeks. Um, and we have a, a, a new regime of some sort in America. Uh, Brexit deadline looms with uh, giant lines of trucks held back already because of a new mutant strain of COVID in the UK. and. Uh, we see chaos in many directions and hope and pray that the Democrats will do a better job. Uh, and I guess my warning would be to everybody that first of all, no, you're not gonna get vaccinated anytime in the near future. Vaccine will not allow you to go back to 2019. In fact, there is no going back to 2019, no matter what. You are going forward to something entirely new. You have to be prepared to take that leap of faith into outer space and hope that you land on solid ground. Um, you will indeed need to keep wearing your masks well into the summer of 2021. For some of you, it may go out to the fall. We have no idea how well these vaccines will perform in the long haul. We don't know if you're gonna need another round of boosters before the whole first tranche of people has even been vaccinated. We don't know the answer. We have four mutant strains that have emerged now, South Africa, Australia, UK, and Denmark. And between them, they, are all, they all show that the virus is getting a lot of selection pressure to mutate around precisely the amino acid con, uh, configuration that is key to the antibody response that we're trying to muster for vaccination. So whether these particular mutants get around the vaccines or the next line of um, mutants gets around the vaccines. We are still in a danger zone. And the real question now is that I see is everybody's sick and tired of it all. Everybody's fed up. They don't want to take precautions anymore. They don't want to not hug everybody in their universe. They want to get back on a crowded subway car. They want a life that is restored to human contact, even contact with the vile, the smelly, and the ones they used to disdain. And that will not come. It cannot come anytime soon. If it does come soon, what we see now as the surge in America will be trivialized by a far more profound epidemic that will have repercussions of, that we can't even imagine right now. Well, that counterbalances your cheery outlook, Kurt. Um, uh, uh, I, I, I think, uh, in, in fact, uh, I found it particularly horrifying and, and vaguely science fiction movie-ish uh, with the mutating strains and no end in sight. Um, similar questions for you, Kavita and Ryan, but because we've got these two guests here, perhaps if you can offer a thought or two and then pose a question for Kurt and for Lori. Start with you, Kavita. Yeah, I'll be brief because when you get people like Kurt and Lori together, I, I love I would love to just have them react. So I'll, I'll just say, <clears throat> uncharacteristic of me, let me offer something positive, um, building a, on a little bit of what Kurt said. I do think coming out of this, the notion that so much of our work could have been done remotely or had a better way to allocate kind of our skills and the tasks, same can be said of healthcare. It's, I hope at least uh, a pretty permanent part of the way healthcare is structured that doing things remotely, including hospital visits in the home for certain conditions, which by the way is happening now, 16 health systems around the country. And then also moving a lot of the kind of work I do in primary care. I, I actually saw a patient, I, I literally did a telephone visit with a patient this morning who was on her break while she was working as a checkout cashier at Giant. So there's an incredible amount that we've learned that I think can be taken and hopefully the healthcare system and all its infinity of, of stupidity won't screw it up. And it builds a little bit on some of what Kurt and Lori have written on. I, I would love to, um, it, we don't have to do it now, David, but I want to park a question for both Kurt and Lori. Kurt, you've written Evil Geniuses and, and some of the excerpts from there in the Atlantic. You've, you've kind of talked about kind of the liberal being the bourgeois, and how like this year or the Trump administration, the kind of domination 
of of the right where science has become questioned so many kind of par- so many paradigms outside of covid have kind of come into the norm and and my question then is do you see the next years forget the biden administration but you you commented on padilla coming in we've got a little bit of a wave but not much what is it going to take to get back to what i think you have written about kind of earlier in your experience when the liberal weren't bourgeois and this could be taking us decades. And, and then Laurie, to your question, I would just love to understand a little bit more about how you see science kind of either regaining some of its credibility, any of its credibility. I mean, where do we go as scientists from here? So, so David, so that, maybe, was, that maybe was respectfully my you, question. Uh, I'm sorry, maybe each one of you can answer those questions fairly briefly, and then we'll go to Ryan who will have a comment and a question as well. So. Uh, Kurt, why don't we kick it off? Well, that? before uh, the election, I, my my operative metaphor for the election was we are at the edge of the abyss and we either take one step back or we go over. And we took one step back. Similarly, I mean, again, it's not like I'm, I'm Mr. Pollyanna going around happily, but it's a long game and we're not dead yet. And my, my, my end of your uh, uh, inclination is to look for, well, it's could be worse. Uh, similarly, with the vaccines, yes, as as Lori correctly says, it's not not like oh we're done good we'll ride the subway again. Obviously not, and we and we have to remain vigilant and and our life upended, uh, and, and living with I think as Lori was suggesting this radical uncertainty into which we've been cast, and 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 that is not all bad. Um, I, I do think, I mean, just as, as Kavita was talking about the, the, the new kinds of medicine, I, I'm on the board of a, of a college and, and, and as, as horrific as the president of the institution has had it and the faculty and everybody else, figuring out ways to do it differently, being cast into having to adapt to radical solutions, again, is, is, is not all bad. In, in terms of the the left and our politics uh it's it's one step away from the abyss you know <laughs> bidenism as it ha- you know is is not my dream of of our political economic future but you you get there one step at a time and 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 i do feel as though now that we've had a congress you know and and a government who's so, sort of like oh a trillion dollars a couple of trillion dollars three trillion dollars the you know uh, the way in which, in 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 the messy way that politics does, this massive uh, monetary and fiscal intervention, it, we're we're not like used to these numbers that that a year ago we uh, would have seemed crazy, but the idea that the, the these social decisions, crises requiring big social decisions and trillions of dollars to solve. That's not a bad uh, thing to learn as a society, uh, as well. So we'll see. I, I, I you know, it, it's not going to be happy days are here again, either in how we deal with the pandemic anytime soon, or uh, solving our gigantic uh, structural economic inequities. But we have taken exactly one crucial step, not into the abyss, but in the direction that in which hope at least is possible. I think actually on Lori's coat of arms, it says into the abyss as her model. <laughs> um, but uh, maybe Lori, you want to respond to Kavita's question? Well, Kavita was asking me about science. A couple of nights ago, uh, I was up on the roof of my building and there were probably 20 people up there and I was eavesdropping on everybody as they explained to their children what it meant to have two planets in alignment and how far the two planets actually were and why it was looking like a star, but it wasn't a star. These were planets and what are planets and um, how far is Jupiter from Saturn? And let's adjust our telescopes so we can see the rings of Saturn. That's science. And that's science that every child hungers for. Every child instinctively wants to know why did the leaves turn red in October and instinctively wants to know, you know, how things work. Where does the water in the faucet come from? 
where what's the actual source for this water and how did it get here so that when I turn the faucet, there it is. So in many ways, the anti-science movement is kind of anti-instinctual, anti-human spirit. It is something that has, has asked its adherents to forsake the wonder of childhood. And it really has consistently reminded me of an experience I had about 25 years ago when I got upgraded to first class on a flight cross country and was so thrilled until I started talking to the gentleman seated next to me and then I desired to go back to coach. And he was, <laughs> uh, he, was he was reading the John Birch Society newspaper and um, told me that he thought there was no reason to ever spend a dime of taxpayer money on anything related to science. It should all be done by the private sector. It should all be in service to the private sector. And I said to him, was there never a moment when in your mind you wondered why a monarch butterfly was orange? Or you looked at a flower and were amazed to see the ants crawling in towards the pollen and wondered what that process was? And he said, no, no, I can't. It's silly stuff. And I thought, how tragic. What a horrible, tragic human being that he's forsaken his childhood sense of wonder. Uh, but we've now created a whole percentage of our society that have forsaken their childhood sense of wonder, uh, all for the sake of saying, you know, uh, right is wrong and that, you know, I don't need to wear a mask or there's no such thing as climate change or what have you. So where is this all headed? I, I actually think it's pretty remarkable that the number one selling, I even have one myself, the number one selling bobblehead is Mr. Tony Fauci. I mean, how my old friend Tony has turned into a national hero. A national mm -hmm. hero is going to transcend the only one that's going to survive the Trump administration and go smoothly into the Democrat administration. Why can he do that? Because Tony Fauci speaks about facts. And the facts are true regardless of who's president of the United States and which party is in power. I think it's fascinating that. Um, there's, there's a whole movement uh, to support science in America, uh, that it, its adherents are, you know, former philosophy majors, for, former English majors who actually can't really explain what a double-stranded DNA is, but they love science anyway. They love the concept. They love the idea. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've had probably the single greatest drive of science in the history of humanity in, in the last 12 months. The amount that has been published on COVID uh, mm. dwarfs anything over the same time scale on any other, not just disease, but the space program and, and all sorts of innovations that we've thought of as the monuments of those times. So I guess I would say this, if we, we are still locked in a battle uh, but it is not a battle against the Inquisition. It's not Galileo defending himself mm -hmm. and saying that the Earth orbits mm -hmm. around the sun and Copernicus was right. It mm -hmm. is an age of um, total values being reconsidered by humanity at all of its tiers. And it gives me some hope that uh, as we look at the scale of the science that has been executed, which, by the way, has been overwhelmingly open source, another innovation unprecedented in, in human history. Um, even the Pope came out denouncing the anti-vaccine movement and issued a statement two days ago saying, no, fetal cells were not used to make the vaccine. And even if they were, we wouldn't oppose it because we want to save humanity from the scourge. Um, and I, I said, wow, you know, it's not only not the Inquisition, but even the leadership of the Inquisition supports science today. Let so, me add to Laurie's beautiful, eloquent uh, aria there, that also the, we have these vaccines and we had so much of scientific value as a result of federal government investment. You know, <laughs> yeah, Moderna, great, Pfizer, great. That happened as a result of tremendous investment over the years by the U.S. government in science that the private sector, to your, to your dude on, in first class 
point would never have done without the help of the ultimate venture capitalist, the US government. And I would only add to that, which is a really good point, that um, that's one of the key differences between the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Moderna really is uh, an NIH vaccine. It, ha it has been born out of NIH research and coddled every step of the way. The company had never made a product before, and we'll see if they even can make this product. Whereas Pfizer rejected NIH funding and rejected Operation Warp Speed support and is a classic go it alone, we patent everything and we have bastions of lawyers to go throw you in prison if you violate our patents. So we see the two extremes in terms of how the companies function. Um, but to Kurt's point, both of them have benefited from US taxpayer support and taxpayer funded scientific research. And there's a reason that the two front runners um, of, of the best vaccines are actually the three front runners, if we include Sinovac and China, have all come out of societies where there is tremendous public support financially for science. Yeah, great and interesting points. And I, I, I think just to underscore the point, you know, we, we, we've sometimes can be too easily drawn into thinking the big stories of our times are political because so much of the media focuses on mm -hmm. political. And it may be that people look back on this year and say the big story of the year was scientific um, and a change in the way science works and, and, and medicine works and, and so forth. Ryan, a comment uh, and then question for Kurt and uh, Lori. Sure, so just uh, quickly in terms of the question you had raised about looking back in 2020, without trying to repeat anything anybody else said, uh, first uh, a rosy <laughs> outlook on one dimension of 2020, which is, the response to the George, the George Floyd protests in response to Black Lives Matter, seeing a multiracial, multi-generational outpouring of political protest and uh, political mobilization, I think is a, a story of 2020 that's important and somewhat more optimistic. Um, though we'll see where that all goes. And then the second one is playing off of something that Laurie had said about 2020, which is the absence of the US from the international stage I just think that there's some pieces that were completely missing uh, that we, I, I don't know if we've given enough attention to. So one is the complete absence of the United States and the State Department on issues of human rights uh, globally, except in the very perverted formulation that Pompeo was trying to articulate. But even then he was even more in the, in the, in the realm of rhetoric. And uh, the absence of the United States from democratic backsliding in other countries. And similarly, um, with respect to COVID and the pandemic, the absence of the United States in terms of leadership, just to imagine a counterfactual of what the world would have looked like if the United States had its house in order with the pandemic, rather than being the worst situation of the world, how much we could have done internationally. I, I, so when we even think of like the human lives that have been lost to COVID because of the incompetence of this administration, it's mm -hmm. not just those in the United States, it's just the, the lost lives that uh, otherwise could have been saved if the US was a leader um, in dealing with the pandemic. Um, I guess my I two questions, uh, you know, one for each. And for Kurt, I did want to return to your point about alternative realities and think about 2021 um, so to actually ask the more the political question with respect to how you think political leaders should deal with the political mobilization of alternative realities, um, the political mobilization of um, mobilizing myths, the way that fascism used mobilizing myths over victimhood from the loss of World War I. And similarly, I worry a lot that part of what we saw in the 2020 election cycle is this mobilizing myth that uh, a, an election was stolen and a coup was orchestrated by Joe Biden, you know, <laughs> um, and mm -hmm. we have tens of millions of Americans who absolutely go to, night, go to bed at night thinking. And we now have a playbook and we have a bunch of different actors that are willing to use that playbook in the, in the year ahead and the years ahead. And so how, do, how would you advise political leaders to grapple, to, to try to counteract that? This is that question. And then Lori, um, when we, were start, when we were preparing for today's podcast, I was thinking back to the very first time you were on the podcast and something you said always stuck with me because it was kind of in the early period of COVID 
and you referred to from your prior work before COVID ever hit, identifying all the gaps in the way in which the United States governmental authorities are both decentralized and fragmented at the state and local level. And that always stuck with me in terms of how we didn't understand that as a lesson learned with respect to infectious disease, public health, and then pandemic control. And do you think that is something that is a bright light for the future that we now have another indication of a lesson learned um, about how federalism is actually, you know, operates against our better interests when it comes to these kinds of issues? We're restructuring that or thinking about um, how that might work in the future. Um, I'm just going to intervene in my role as air traffic controller here. Um, because I want to welcome Juliet Kayyem, who is another of our, our great guests from throughout the year, who is uh, uh, joining us, and she's popped on just a little bit early. And so let me explain how this is going to go. We've got a question for Kurt. We've got a question for Lori. Kurt's going to go. Um, Lori, you can go or stay as, as, as you wish. We're going to keep um, talking, and then we're going to fold Juliet into the conversation. But first, response from Kurt and a response from Lori. And hi, Juliet. Hello. Go ahead. Uh, that was great, a great question and a great preface from Ryan, because as, as execrable as the, the U.S. leadership in the pandemic uh, has been, and in other ways, in terms of trying to be on the side of the angels rather than not in, in, in international affairs, that, I mean, is among the easiest things that this Biden-Harris administration can fix, right? I mean, th- that that is, as things go, like, wow, we can start in day one, as they say, uh, begin fixing that. As opposed to this other thing about which, again, I, I wrote this whole book called Fantasyland um, that uh, finished in 2016, came out in 2017, and people would always say, oh, but okay, You've, you've diagnosed this problem in, in the American way uh, This that goes back way, 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 many, many years, half century, and then centuries before Donald Trump came along. How do you fix it? And, and, and I didn't have an answer that for that. I don't have an answer for that. One of my answers was to write Evil Geniuses, which is to say at least the, the degree to which uh, it was politicized and was mobilized and weaponized. This 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 American predisposition for fantastical thinking and exciting falsehoods of various kinds. That at least we can make. There are fixable things that are fixable politically, uh, which is to say, not permit a a a, a right wing to to that cares about profit above all else to an extreme grotesque degree that wasn't even the case when I was a child. Uh, we can, that, that is a political problem and, and it's a long political struggle and it can be fixed to, to reassert the, the, the facts about, for instance, climate change and why it is that the right and big business wants us, to, wants Americans not to believe the scientific consensus about how that happens and how perhaps it can be fixed and so forth. The bigger question, the, 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 this, the, the, so, so we can make it, we can, I think we can stop it from getting worse through political means and, and in our own lives by standing up for empiricism, the enlightenment facts, all the rest. But in terms of the basic underlying weakness in this country and not just this country, but especially this country for uh, untruths and and subjective belief and feeling feelings being privileged over over reason and all the rest I got nothing <laughs> I, I don't know how to fix that I think we can we can stop it from getting worse in our own lives and in the lives of those around us uh, and I think, Again, in this way, I actually do think Joe Biden, for all of one's doubts about him as a person, uh, I have great hope in that he is he is far better equipped than, say, I would be as president of the United States to not demonize and trash and slag the idiots and fantasists who are his constituents. 
you know, and to try to bring them into the tent gently and understandingly and all that, because, you know, that's, that's what needs to be done. I mean, you need to sort of stand up for facts and I think he and they will do that. Um, but, uh, the, the, the solution is not, it's not to, to say, Hey, read this book, fantasy land that shows why you're all a bunch of idiots and fantasists. You know, that obviously is not the solution uh, politically. It is, it is, I, I stand by everything I said in that book about the, the nature of America's, uh, Americans, um, uh, weakness for, for such exciting falsehoods of various kinds, conspiracy theories and otherwise, but how you, how you, how you kind of try to put up the, 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 the rebuild the firewall for that. That's, that's a tough one. And, and, uh, um, and, and I, and I actually think. I honestly actually think that Joe Biden is not a bad person to be leading that effort, however it <laughs> should be done. Um, thank you, Kurt, and I, and I wish you a happy holiday. Oh, same uh, to all of you. This was such a pleasure. And now I don't want to leave. This is too good. Well, I don't want you to feel obligated to leave. Well, and, in, in, until, until I, uh, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll stay for a few more minutes. Well, you stay. And what I also want to say is, Lori, please respond to Ryan's question. But Juliet, you've been here listening. And so I'm going to turn to you in a second and ask you to respond to Kurt and to Lori. And then we'll right. go back with a question from Kavita and one from Ryan. Well, Ryan, I'm kind of blown away that you remember my remarks from way back, you know, almost a year now. Um, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, and I was just thinking this morning that it was actually a year ago today, today being December 23rd, that I was sitting in front of my computer monitoring rumors out of Wuhan. Mm -hmm. And I was convinced that I was seeing SARS again, having been, lived through and been in the middle of the SARS epidemic in 2003 in Hong Kong and mainland China. Uh, I was seeing all the, the cross communications that rang like, oh yeah, this is the way they lie. This is the way they cover it up. This is what's going on. And Christmas day through New Year's was a time of deep concern for me. I was convinced that we were watching a great pandemic unfold. And I was terrified about what I could actually publicly say because I was getting death threats every time I said there was a pandemic coming and I was accused of being chicken little and declaring the sky was falling and all of that. And of course you wonder, why isn't our federal government saying something? Mm. Why, what, where's the CDC? Why am I not hearing from them? Um, and indeed what, what we have seen unfold is the, in part the result of uh, uh, you know, a longstanding states rights movement in America turned upside down so that it's the right to have a state without masks. It's the right to have a state that doesn't invest in public health. It's a right to have a state that lets more black people die than white people die on a percentage basis. It's a right to have a state that closes its public hospitals. And how dare you say otherwise? So that here we have the state today, as I speak, that has the highest per capita death rate to COVID at this moment is Tennessee and its governor has specifically ruled that nobody has to wear a mask in the state of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. It's an entirely personal optional choice. There shall be no mandate of any kind. Um, and you know, one of the things that's, a, that's very striking is to look around the world and ask a year out, which countries are doing well with COVID and which countries are flailing about madly. Uh, of course, we are the worst. But there are many others that are doing very, very poorly, and why? And I think it's very clear that a, a key component of success is a national uniform policy that disseminates across the country and that is based on the science of the moment. Now, it's true that certain countries have had the additional bonus that they are islands. So New Zealand, Iceland, Japan have all done very well, but they're also cut off from the flow of humanity across a physical border. Um, but there are other countries that have done very well, like Finland, uh, Norway, uh, Canada. And we can see that they do indeed have many borders that are immediately adjacent. And so the island theory is not adequate. What's, what's clear is that we have lacked any, any possible concept of a national policy. 
Indeed, Scott Atlas, the notorious let us have herd immunity advisor to President Trump, in his, you could call it a resignation letter uh, that was published in the Wall Street Journal this week, specifically stated, how dare you accuse me or the Trump administration of exerting horrible policies, why there is no national policy <laughs> that he in defense of himself. So therefore he could say whatever he liked because it would have no ramifications was his argument. Um, and I think it's very clear we can't stop COVID if we continue to have this you know, incredibly fragmented set of pseudo responses around the country. We can't create any sense of equity um, in any society, even the parts of America that do have progressive leadership, um, as long as it is the case that the highest per capita infection and death rates are in people of color and in particularly poor people of color, and that they are the least likely to have health coverage and to have an, a state that shows any concern for their survival. So um, I would say this whole question of federalism and states' rights uh, is at the root of why America has done so much worse. Um, now, the next question you would ask, I, I think it was built into your question, is are we going to learn from this and do something about it? And the answer to that, unfortunately, is that, you know, it's written stone. Mm -hmm. Our public health system, unlike any others in the world, arose at the local level. And all law is built at the local level so that you can drive from county to county and the allowable amount of a certain toxin in the water supply may be different. Um, you can drive from county to county and see differences in enforcement of air pollution regulations and every single fundamental aspect of public health. So um, while having a more aggressive, open, transparent CDC would be a very good thing, and having the CDC in the driver's seat for the first time since this damned epidemic started would be a very good thing. But let's not fool ourselves. We can't, you know, snap our fingers and say, let's stop Mississippi from refusing uh, prenatal interventions for African-American women in the following 12 counties. Uh, we from the outside cannot do that. We cannot do that for Mississippi any more than we can do it for uh, you know, Chad or Molly. Um, and this is a fundamental difference in how we are structured legally for all aspects of public health in America compared to all of our neighbors and most of the advanced industrial world. And, uh, you know, there's a reason China was, for all its flaws and its original obfuscation, able to bring this epidemic under control in that country. It's because it has centralized leadership and the Communist Party can say, thou shalt all walk left foot first, and the whole nation walks left foot first. Uh, we have the opposite. You could say, thou shalt walk left foot first, and you will have an incident like what just happened in Los Angeles, where some guys kicked out of a strip club for not wearing masks, came back with AK-47s, shot the whole place up, 30 people hospitalized with gunshot wounds. That's America. Okay, well, Juliet, do you want to respond to that? And then we'll go for a question from Kavita and a question for Ryan. We've got about 15, 20 minutes left to go here. So I just, everybody can. Yeah, no, plan no, no I mean, there's nothing I disagree with here. I think uh, I, I started writing. Um, the Atlantic called me. I was tweeting because I follow Lori and I follow Stat News. I was tweeting about COVID from my perspective. I do the Homeland Security response side. I'm not an infectious disease expert. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I guess I, I was. I looked the other day. I think uh, one of my first tweets or comments about this disease in China was. January third, I think, was the first time I saw Stat and the Wall Street Journal and. Lori, you and others start to say this is not, something's not right here because China keeps minimizing it, but they've called the WHO in. I guess around then was when they called them in. Anyway, I was getting progressively more concerned about it because anyone who knows how an infectious disease works knows that the likelihood that, we had, that they had contained it was minimal. Um, and I say this only because at some stage in February, the Atlantic uh, asked me to write essays through the pandemic on the response side on sort of how, how should this work. My first one, March 8th, was called um, uh, 
America, you have no idea what's about to happen because I had been in part of, you know, pandemic planning and new, you know, social distancing. But the second one was open with the line, we're about to see if the Articles of Confederation uh, uh, would have worked, which is we, saw, <laughs> we could see early on what was happening with Trump, which he was going to delegate responsibility. Now, the truth is, is all disasters, you know, they're, they're locally executed, state managed, uh, federally supported. Uh, so you're still, the, the local side would have never changed, regardless of who the president is. And the, the, but obviously the, the, the state uh, coordinated would have been um, better uh, with federal support uh, and, and federal consciousness of what actually was going to happen. So if you think of, you know, January through March as the, as the you know, the, the squandered months, that is really when the federal government was most needed and most absent because you would have gotten resources, you would have delivered the PPE, you would have gotten the Defense Production Act, you wouldn't have lied to the American public. Uh, when you think about things, you know, and I don't know who to believe, but, you know, the, the Louisiana governor, you know, saying in late February, he had never really, didn't really think much about anything that was going on in China, so proceeded with Mardi Gras. There had never been a threat assessment given to him uh, as late as late February, where a rational federal government would have gotten the states and localities uh, ready. Uh, and we will see that continue. But I think it's important that people also know the more limited role of the federal government in, in disaster management, uh, just because our capacity is at the local level. It's money and it's surge. And I think that's what we're going to need for the vaccination side, too. Uh, is we're going to need more money for state and locals and, 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 and the Defense Production Act or stockpile, call it whatever you want. But it's still going to be, you know, delivered to states, delivered to localities, getting into your arm. Um, I've been involved, I should disclosure, I've been involved with that planning on both the private and public side uh, since June. And, um, and it's got to, you know, we, we got to get it on adrenaline, but, uh, you know, the mistakes are being worked out and stuff. So that, uh, you know, hope for 2021. I recognize that the science is telling us we don't know the extent of how beneficial the vaccine is. We don't know how long it will last. We don't know this new uh, variant in England. But nonetheless, everyone seems to agree it's a precondition to getting back to normal-ish. But everyone needs to pace the, the, the dates that the Bush administration, uh, the Bush, that was weird, the Trump administration spring, that's just BS. No rational person who has looked at the numbers, even if you think Johnson and Johnson and all these other companies will, will get approval, thinks that you're going to really get, you know, you, we'll, we'll get a good, through a good chunk of the general population by August, right? So this is, this is a way we have to think about 2021. Um, and then there's all sorts of questions about allocation. So I, you know, so, so, so Lori's exactly right that, that what the federal government could have done didn't, it undermined it. And there's a data point that I think is really interesting since Biden has been elected. And I, you know, I, I you know, you can, uh, you can parse things and, and at some stage you just have to stop hating, not hating, but you just have to accept it. But six Republican governors since Biden was elected president and since that Saturday have moved from non-masking rules to masking rules. And that suggests to me that if you can get a president in there who takes you know, some of this edge off of it, some of this politics off of it, the data, the polling from NPR and NewsHour, the most recent polling shows close to 80% of Americans are pro-masking. They kind of get it. So I'm, these are things I'm looking forward to in a more rational uh, uh, American, recognizing the damage is done. Like, like, you know, I mean, in other words, this is no conversation about the hope of vaccines should, should end without saying it's inexcusable and of, of, of what this administration has put us through. So that's how I'm looking at 2021 and sort of describe the next couple months as sort of a split screen where our numbers are going to be horrible. We'll reach 400,000. We'll reach, you know, yeah, you know, I'll just say 400,000. Um, uh, and then you're going to start to see the vaccination program with all the caveats uh, actually uh, begin to surge because uh, Biden has promised putting money into it um, um, and greater capacity. And then I think you'll get more consistent messaging so that governors will have some backing. And I'll just one final point of this, like they, they want it. I don't know how to describe it, but like 
think about airlines. Um, the airlines, you know, Trump is always like, oh, free market and, you know, can't, can't relegate the private sector, you know, uh, regulate the private sector. The airlines would kill for a federal masking rule because they, these, these one-offs where they're, you know, they're, they're taking people off and, you know, 200 people are on no-fly zones. You, you could get in on day one and have an FAA rule that requires masking with, with some sort of massive national policy, like no-fly list for every airline for this BS that we see happening on airlines. So those are the kinds of things that the federal government can do. <laughs> Okay, so that's great. We've got about 10 minutes to go, eight or 10 minutes. So I'm going to give half of it to Kavita, half of it to Ryan, have a quick question, comment, whatever you wish, and direct it. And, and let's try to work within those um, parameters if we could, although I, we could go on for hours, but I think we need to limit it. Kavita. Great. And I, I'm going to shift gears. Uh, it's It's related to the pandemic, but Juliet, because you've spent so much time in security issues and watched Russia over the years. I wanted to ask you, I think it was it was an old, old interview or maybe a retweet of an interview, but you've spoken many times about, you know, Russia doesn't just drop in and out like every couple of years, that this is yeah. a constant kind of, you know, interference. So how how do we take a step, maybe taking a step back, knowing that a lot of what we just spoke about before you came and while you were here has been around kind of misinformation, a lack of trust in science. I do believe, I think you've said it, I agree, Russia is an incredible kind of tailwind for that. Yeah. So what, what needs to happen? There's kind of the role of the federal government, the role of national security. I think there's a, it would be interesting to hear kind of your perspective of now that America is going to be reintroduced to the global stage, mm -hmm. what is it that we are going to see and, and I'm kind of eager to understand your kind of forecasts for the future yeah. about Russia and how it fits into some of the conversations we just had. Yes, no, it's, it's a great question. So one is the, the, the never underestimate the power of public shaming. So, so part of this is Putin is very, very weak. Uh, and um, exposure is not something that he necessarily wants in, in this regard. So part of it is just having a consistent messaging that thou shalt not, and that can be aligned with uh, economic increase economic sanctions. Uh, travel sanctions work a lot against the oligarchs. They get pissed at Putin for that. So you just need a sophisticated uh, uh, punishment, right? So you need the sticks um, on the carrot side, uh, or you know what I look forward to is the data. Actually, there, there's a certain pool of people that we like to believe they're being manipulated, right? Oh, the Fox News work. No, the, 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 the Fox viewers are following what they want to hear. So they're going to OAN and these other crazy networks. They're, the idea, and, and, and so they're sort of untouchable, but they also know what they want to hear isn't necessarily true. It's just, they're just following what they want to hear, right? The Fox is too moderate for them. It's like uh, crazy. So you, you work with the pile of people, the, the, the group of people that will be, us uh, uh, not manipulated. And I think the first salve, I think there's two major agendas when, with Russia. I mean, one is going to be obviously uh, a payback for uh, uh, this hack, which is going to be a combination of the sanctions with the public shaming, uh, with probably covert actions in Russia that disrupt, uh, my guess is, disrupt the banking system. What, what hurts Putin is not military, it's the banking system because all of his guys are so corrupt. So some combination on that. The other is, of course, the vaccine or the, the health mis disinformation, uh, which I actually have become, you know, maybe I'm just like in a good mood, but they, I mean, we survived 2020, you know, what else do I have? But actually the data is starting to look really good on that as well. The 50-50 the of vaccine percentage of vaccine hesitancy has shifted to 80%. Now it's not a perfect 80% of people that will take the vaccine. 40% of those will, and this is consistent data from Kaiser and whatever, 40% of them will take it yesterday, like me, like I'll bump a doctor, you know, I want it so bad. I'm so sick of this. And then I'm sorry, sorry I'm not going to bump a doctor. And then 40% want to take it, but don't want to take it first. And that's predominantly the African-American community and other minority communities for obvious reasons. So that means that they are gettable um, and they are not buying the BS. So I'm feeling like, you know, this is not rocket science. It's a combination of 
cybersecurity protections, a reckoning on the intelligence failure, because let's not forget, I know we're the victims, but boy, we should, as citizens, we should be pissed that this was able to happen for so long. So that's what I'm, I'm looking at. And I think, I think this part will actually be kind of fun because um, uh, Putin is, is, um, is weaker than uh, Trump would have had us believe. Okay. Um, Brian, why don't you do a last question? I see Laurie has sort of dropped off uh, for the moment. So why don't you do a last question and then we'll wrap it up? Sure. Oh, um, oh no, now, now Laurie is back. Let, okay. me, let, me, let me say this. I, I was, I was going to ask you a question, Laurie. I see you're muted, but let, I was going to ask you a question, which, which was um, following up on what Juliet was saying about the, the vaccine uptake. And, and, and the groups there. Maybe if you could give a brief answer to that, and then we'll go to Ryan for the last question. Juliet's right. She was citing data that's uh, showing an uptick in willingness to get vaccinated. I think there's a lot of excitement out there. The problem is going to be as we go further in and the realization sets in to the public that you know the vaccine ain't coming soon and that the average person isn't going to see a vaccine till summer. Uh, then Then, the question is how much will that be sustained and you know it is axiomatic that as more people get vaccinated we'll see more side effects that just happens that's normal but in this case it may it may exacerbate difficulties in trying to get uptake uh for the public and of course this anaphylaxis problem which is now six cases uh has everybody dumbfounded the NIH is devoting a huge effort now to try to understand why it's happening. Why are people going into anaphylactic shock shortly after being vaccinated? Um, and we've not seen that with other vaccines. So this is an issue. Um, and, you know, I think it's axiomatic that as more vaccines roll out, there will be problems with different ones. And then you'll go back to fighting for the public's trust and this is going to be an ongoing struggle back and forth as we go into the year 2021. Okay. Quick question, quick answers. Uh, uh, last round, Ryan. So I'm just going to take a cue from Kavita and ask Juliet about another area of yours um, expertise, uh, which is coming from the Homeland Security issue. And one of the things I'm concerned most about going into the next year is white supremacy, violent nationalism, <clears throat> stoked by political forces that we haven't seen before in terms of how explicitly they're willing to mobilize those actors um, and what you think is the right way for political leaders, it could be uh, the Biden White House or state officials to grapple with what's coming. Yeah. So, that, yeah, this has been um, the other side before the pandemic. It's just uh, the, the Trump's use of a tactic known as stochastic terrorism uh, to to he's not the terrorist, but he uh, 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 says language that is sufficiently electrifying and violent that his followers would then use it for political purposes. And the, the media had always sort of shir like shir shrank from it whenever I would use it because it sounds like oh, you're calling Trump a terrorist. I think now people are well aware. That's exactly what he's doing. So just quickly, so what do I think? So, you know, obviously there's a lot of reasons for the rise of white nationalism, social media, uh, demographics. They are, you know, we are now, we are, in terms of birthing, of, of, uh, in terms of uh, births, we are now a majority, uh, a, a majority, well, we can't even call them minority, non-white uh, country. And that will mean that by 2040, uh, we, are, we are more, uh, less white, than, than not. Uh, but the third is the third reason, uh, besides the platforms and demographics, is clearly Trump and um, and 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 that kind of language. And so uh, and it feeds off of each other. We see this with ISIS. So winners are successful. So the, the, Trump's loss will mean some pool of them will no longer buy on. Um, shaming helps, and I think there's something about Biden in his sort of come on, man you know, attitude, which actually is a sort of form of shaming. It is, it is just shit, this, excuse me, this stuff will not be tolerated anymore at the highest levels. Um, but there will be uh, uh, continuing elements, I think in particular in the first 
year or two of the Biden presidency will probably taper off. And the and that's where public arrests, public in the sense, you know, big time arrests, you know, purple. I mean, the kind of stuff I like, because these guys are essentially uh, not very, um, um, you know, they're cowardly, but they have guns. I will tell you once again, I'm going to be in a good mood for 2021. One of the best news stories, so is um, is the lack of uh, street presence for Trump since the election. Because I monitor this and I monitor it. I mean, there's nothing better than when I get canceled on CNN, right? Because we were worried about the Saturday mm-hmm. after and then the following. Um, and even this one that had a little had some violence in D.C., just put it in perspective of how many votes Trump got. These are not big rallies. Uh, so that gives me hope as well that, that and, and, and so long as Trump, tr- I mean, so, so long as Biden tries uh, to bring in the vast majority of Trump supporters who would not go to violence, I think we're in good shape. And, you know, I used to joke like make America shamed again, right? In other words, we need people at the top that shame this. And that's where they were just feeding off of his, you know, this liberate Michigan or, you know, the, the, Proud boys. And so, but it will, it will not go away. The hate doesn't go away. And final thing is it's going to be a real test to the media, how much attention we pay him when he's gone on January 20th. Cable news is not going to be as interesting. And, you know, and, and so do you make it more interesting by following him down to Mar-a-Lago or, you know, I mean, Biden, the stability, I, I said to my husband the other day, the benefit of Biden is he gives us the luxury of looking away for a little bit, right? I mean, I, I sort of look, you know, like maybe I'll go on vacation and well, when the COVID's over, you know, and actually not think about it. Like that's the luxury, but that's not good for uh, for cable or, or, or newsprint. So we'll see how that plays out. In our final minute of this amazing conversation, Lori, I will turn to you and ask, for your words of advice to the audience as as they uh, for 2021 what what are the what are the watch words for you for them for 2021 well i can tell you what i would hope what i would dream of is that um some of the things that ryan referred to the human rights issues the black lives matter um the killing of george floyd and so on um and some of the things that Juliet was getting into just now about, uh, you know, the militia reaction um, and whether or not we follow the whack jobs as they depart Washington, do they do they continue to command headlines? Um, what I would love is if 2021 becomes the year that Americans start to really seriously think about how we function as a country how we make change, care for our neighbors, care for the nature of our communities, the survival of our communities, um, the institutions we love, the museums, the arts, the, the restaurants, the local business down the street that's struggling, that somehow we go through 2021 with a kind of reimagination of our collective possibility and our ability to um, you know, love thy neighbor, just the simple basic maxim. Um, I, I would just add one thing. I, I was on a, this crazy thing called Peacock Network. It's an NBC spinoff. And all the, all the questions were about, well, didn't the Republicans do this? And didn't the Republicans do that? And I found myself becoming increasingly angry mm-hmm. and trying to not just lash out at the host because I don't see all this as being about a partisan divide as much as a kind of struggle for the soul of what we think this country is about, how we define the country. And while certain party leaders have tried to manipulate that in their, to their advantage one way or another, um, that struggle for the soul has been brought to the fore by the COVID crisis. And it has, it, it cuts across party identity. It's deeper than that, much deeper. And if we can come out of this with a sense of that, I think the medical establishment is, is going through right now, a sense of reassessing what has been our role in, the, in uh, uh, fueling racism 
in our society and racial and gender divides in our society. All of medicine is going, wow, look at how COVID is slaughtering African-Americans and Latinos. Don't we need to reassess what our priorities have been? I hope this translates into every other sector so that 2021 becomes the year that America does some serious self-reflection and somehow redefines what is the heart of the country that brings tears to your eyes when you sing the national anthem at a baseball game. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. And I think, you know, it, it, it ties into what Juliet was saying and what Kurt was saying and what we've all been saying here for the course of the past year um, about the goals that we've got. It, it, it strikes me listening to you, Lori, that uh, a great leader would have used COVID to unite the country. A great leader would have said this is a common enemy that affects people, whether they are um, Republican or Democrat or regardless of their demographic group, and we must come together. You know, I'm reminded of the story of Ronald Reagan saying, you know, if you want to unite people, say, you know, the aliens have landed, you know, that brings that brings the world together. Um, and I think and I, in fact, I've been writing something which will come out next week, but I think the big radical idea of, of 2021, and I say this as somebody who's pretty progressive, pretty far left on the spectrum on most issues, is going to be finding common ground, is going to be daring to find areas where there is compromise, uh, because um, the stakes are that high right now. And it's not popular in either party to look for common ground, but it's essential to everybody. And I think that's an underlying message of what you've said. Uh, that's why I think these kind of conversations are so remarkable. You folks are also remarkable. Let me just say one very, very brief thing, which is we're going to throw a little bit of a stocking stuffer into your podcast bags later this week. Uh, we've been trying to find different kinds of ways to look at current events. And we were thinking about it. And we realized one of the places where most of the discussions of current events take place is the kitchen. Um, and, um, uh, Kurt Anderson's very first intern at spy magazine, um, was a young future baker of America, my sister, um, who has been, who's a New York times food writer and who's a, been a food writer for a lot of people. And, um, so she's, she writes about baking and stuff like that. So we just thought put her in a room with somebody interesting and see what happens. And she had a great initial conversation with the comedian, Kathy Griffin. And uh, so you'll find in the bag something called The Secret Life of Cookies, just by staying in your deep state radio feed and uh, um, see if you like it. Uh, thank you very much, Juliet. Thank, thank you, guys. You Happy holidays. Thank you very much, Thanks. Lori. Thank you, Kurt in absentia. Uh, Ryan and Kavita, it is one of the highlights of my week to be able to talk with you guys and to partake of your wisdom. Uh, and I look forward to doing that next year, perhaps a year when we get to talk about some different kinds of things. Although I, I, I take everything Lori said to heart, and I suspect it's going to be late in the year before that before that really happened. Uh, in any event, happy holidays to all of you. You were great. This was a great discussion. It's been a remarkable year. We're not going to podcast between now and 2021. Uh, so I can say, uh, you know, yay, we've, we've made it through 2020. Uh, thanks in part to the wisdom of you guys. So thanks everybody and stay healthy. <laughs>